Welcome to episode 8 of the Security Matters podcast, where we bring you the latest news, views and opinion from across the UK's dedicated security business sector. My name's Brian Sims and I'm the editor of Security Matters magazine. We're delighted that this podcast is sponsored by the Security Event, which runs at the NEC in Birmingham on the 27th, 28th and 29th of April 2021. To register for the show, visit www.thesecurityevent.co.uk. In terms of what's making the news at the moment, as many of Security Matters readers will know, the British Security Industry Association has been working in partnership with the Security Institute and the Security Commonwealth of late on a campaign entitled The Hidden Workforce. That campaign is focused on resetting perceptions about security officers and their day-to-day role. Pleasingly, the campaign, which has been fervently supported by Security Matters, has gained incredible traction across the industry, both here in the UK and overseas. Recently, the BSI was contacted by its counterparts in both the United States and Australia regarding the excellent initiative that's dubbed the International Security Officers Day. This actually took place on Friday the 24th of July. It was purpose designed to recognise the outstanding work of security officers in Europe, the US and Asia, and indeed around the globe. The day was supported in full by the team here at Security Matters and Western Business Media. In celebration of the day, the BSI created a short podcast recognising the work of its own member security companies and their diligent personnel, in addition to tasks transacted by the wider industry. Further, the Trade Association uploaded content from the International National Security Officers Day website to its own dedicated The Hidden Workforce webpage. Every day, security officers put themselves in harm's way to protect members of the public from danger. Yet the sad fact of the matter is that few people outside of security industry practitioners themselves and the security industry per se ever recognise the sacrifices they make. International Security Officers Day is an opportunity to thank and commend those brave individuals who work behind the scenes to keep us all safe. The date of 24th of July is chosen for a reason. Having been selected to represent the 24-7 nature of security work, the initiative itself was kicked started in Australia, but International Security Officers Day is now celebrated in many countries around the world, including but not limited to New Zealand, Hong Kong, Macau, India and Thailand. The long-term goal here is to build enough support around the world to petition the United Nations, such that it formally declares 24th of July each and every year as International Security Officers Day, paying due recognition to the huge contribution made by the thousands of security officers who safeguard business premises and people. This is another fabulous initiative at what's a particularly important juncture for the security profession. The BSIA the Security Institute and the Security Commonwealth are to be roundly applauded and commended for their own The Hidden Workforce campaign and, in tandem with other partners, for lobbying the government on the issue of key and critical worker status for frontline security personnel. In my view, that status should have been recognised and ratified a long time ago. Now is most certainly the moment for the security industry to make its mark and ensure the huge importance of its work and its constituent people is observed by the wider business world, including those with the procurement purse strings, as well as members of the general public. Mighty Group PLC, the Facilities Management and professional services company has just provided a trading update for the three-month period ended 30th of June 2020. Although the COVID-19 situation has impacted the performance of the company in the first quarter, the business has proven to be more resilient than expected, and particularly so across security services, technical services contracts, cleaning and public sector contracts. Mighty Group PLC has over 37,500 employees working daily on the front line, in turn reflecting the critical services provided to myriad customers. Recently, over 40% of the 7,000 members of staff on furlough have been brought back to work as customers resume their operations. In the first three months of 2020, Mighty Group PLC has won new contracts relating to COVID-19 testing centres, renewed the Group PSA contract with additional services, and, as reported by Security Matters, won a new integrated FM contract with the Royal London Group. On top of that, of the nine strategic accounts referred to in the recent prospectus as being renewed this year, seven have already been extended, with the final two now under discussion, and where Mighty Group PLC is confident of extending the arrangements already in place. Group revenue from continuing operations for the three 
months ended 30th of June 2020 was £458.3 million. This is 11% lower than the same period in the prior year, with June's performance slightly better than the previously announced April and May result. This revenue decline includes the known loss of the Ministry of Justice contract and the reduced scope of the NHS properties contract. Due to the seasonality of its business, the first quarter is generally Mighty Group PLC's lowest quarter in its fiscal year. Business Services, which represents 53% of overall Mighty Group PLC revenues, reported revenue of £243 million. That's 1% lower than for the same period last year. Excluding the aforementioned Ministry of Justice contract, which ended on 31st of March 2020, Business Services reported a 2% increase in revenue as the division has benefited from customers requesting additional security and cleaning, as well as new government contracts for COVID-19 testing centres and bespoke NHS Nightingale Hospital projects. After a significant decline in revenue from transport and logistics sector customers, Business Services is now starting to see some airports reopening, while Eurostar has also increased the number of services required. Representing 11% of group revenue, Specialist Services reported revenue of £52.4 million. This figure is 10% lower than the same period last year. Care and Custody reported revenue of £25.9 million, down 7% due to expired contracts. In terms of net debt and working capital, average daily net debt pre-IFRS 16 for the three months ending 30th of June 2020 was much reduced at £71 million. During the three-month period, Mighty Group PLC has deferred an additional £133 million of HMRC time to pay taxes, which benefited the average daily net debt by £103 million. From July 2020 through to March 2021, the group will repay £65 million with a final repayment of £101 million on 1st of April next year. At the general meeting held on 13th of July, shareholders overwhelmingly voted in favour of the resolution to approve the rights issue. Dealings in new shares will commence at 8am on 29th of July and receipt of the total rights issue proceeds of £190 million is expected by no later than 3rd of August. Mighty Group PLC's new £250 million revolving credit facility, including the revised covenants, commences on 3rd of August and matures on the 16th of December 2022. Meanwhile, integration plans for the acquisition of InterServe facilities management have commenced with the appointment of a full-time integration program director and the standing up of the integration team. Subject to shareholder approval and other conditions, the transaction is expected to close in the fourth quarter of this year. Mighty has shown tremendous leadership during the COVID-19 crisis, with an exemplar performance in the security sector itself. The Managing Director of Business Services at Mighty, namely Jason Towers, took part in the Security Matters webinar on the future roadmap for security guarding. If you didn't catch the broadcast on the day, you can watch the webinar on demand by visiting our website at www.fsmatters.com forward slash security hyphen matters and clicking on the webinars tab. Our first guest on episode 8 of the Security Matters podcast is David Scott. David is the Managing Director at Skills for Security, the UK's skills body for the private security sector. The holder of a first-class honours degree from Northumbria University in the subject of leadership and management, David has served at New College Lanarkshire in the role of curriculum and quality leader for the built environment and security systems. He's also a qualifications verifier for the Scottish Qualifications Authority. Joining Skills for Security in August last year, David is now tasked with directing and controlling operations and providing strategic leadership on behalf of the board in order to ensure that all organisational objectives are achieved. Earlier this week, I spoke with David about the Trailblazer Apprenticeship Standard for the fire and security sector, core projects at Schools for Security, and what's next in the pipeline. First, we concentrated on what Schools for Security is all about as an organisation. David, thanks very much for joining us on the podcast. Uh, focusing initially on Skills for Security as an organisation, for the benefits of our readers, can you explain what Skills is all about? Yeah, no problem, Brian. Thanks for having me again. Really much appreciated and looking forward to giving you an overview of what Skills for Security are currently working on. But 
Yeah, so Skills for Security are primarily um, an apprenticeship training provider and our core focus is within the electronic sector for now, where we are the largest fire security apprenticeship provider in the whole of the UK. We currently have 200 apprentices enrolled on programme and we cover all four of the main disciplines within sectors. So we're training all the apprentices on fire, intruder, access and CCTV. And we're currently very, very popular within the industry because our organisational strategy is to actually make training more accessible for the employers and stakeholders throughout industry. And what I mean by that is that there should be no barriers to an employer or an apprentice coming on a training programme. So we are actively out there trying to see where we can open up satellite centres so that apprentices can attend training in their local area. And since I took over in August 2019, we've actually opened three satellite centres. So our training is actually delivered in Warrington. That's our our headquarters. But we've got two satellite centres in Birmingham and also Southport where we deliver training. And later this year, we're also looking at one in Oxford and another in Bradford as well. Some of the other things that Skills for Security do is that we're the sector skills body for um, Scotland, Northern Ireland and Wales. And what that is involved in is that we actually are the, the sort of the middle piece between the sector and education where we do, we actually evaluate and look into what standards and training is required within the the, the nations. We develop a national occupational standards for the security sector and we own the apprenticeship for the electronic security sector in Scotland, Northern Ireland and Wales. And also we're currently developing a brand new apprenticeship in that area for the the security um, and uh, the sort of physical security sector as well. And what's changed at Skills for Security in recent times, David? Yeah, I think the the main change for our, from from my perspective was the the government in England moved away from sector skills body so that apprenticeships and training were more employer led, which meant the skills for security had their whole model had to change because that was one of the main things that they did for the sector. So they have actually moved away from developing standards in England because it's no longer required. And now our main focus is on that apprenticeship training. But some of the other things that have changed is just the culture around the organisation. Since I took over in August 2019, we did hear a lot of negativity about the organisation from sector themselves and specifically the stakeholders. And I think what we've managed to do within, uh, with that in mind is that we've actually just changed the culture of the organisation. Anybody that deals with Skills for Security now sees us as an open door. Um, we're happy to help. We want to engage with employers. We want to engage with our stakeholders. And really what we really want to achieve is that we want to make um, the, the quality education within both the electronic and physical security really high quality delivery of training. And can you give us an update on some of the important core projects you're working on at the present time? Yeah, so the, the main one which I sort of mentioned a couple of minutes ago was around the apprenticeship that we're currently developing for the physical security sector in Scotland, Northern Ireland and Wales. So we're in the very final stages of development of that, where we're developing a, a level two or a, an SEQF level five apprenticeship programme that has three or four different pathways. 
And those pathways are the CCTV operator, security officer and events premises, licensed premises, and also security guards. So the companies that are engaging in this process are Securitas, uh, Security Group, Mighty, G4S, Glasgow City Council and the BSIA as well. And a number of smaller organisations are involved in the development. And we have come up with this apprenticeship programme that fits the needs for the industry. And we're really, really excited about it. And we're hoping that the development of that will be finished um, around December this year. The, the original target was September. But with the current COVID situation, we, we believe it's been delayed slightly. But we're really, really excited about that. And we think it's really going to help fix or help fix the skill shortage that they're they're currently seeing in Scotland, Northern Ireland and and Wales. And what's your involvement in the Trailblazer Apprenticeship Standard for the fire and security sector and why do you feel it's so important, David? Again, the the reason it's so important is because there's there's so many large organisations within the security sector that are naturally paying into the levy and are unable to spend that money on appropriate training for their sector. And when I speak to a number of large employers down in England, the, the, the feedback that I'm getting is that they're having to spend their money on the soft skills of the business or the core skills in terms of customer service, team leadership, management courses, but they're not able to spend that money on the sort of core elements of their organisation, which is um, the security. So this trailblazer is going to give them an opportunity to spend the money on uh, aspects that are going to improve the service that they deliver to their customers. Um, and our involvement is that we are that, again, um, the SIA are sort of leading on it, although it's employer-driven, employer-led. SIA are sort of the organising body about pulling, bringing people together. And they've asked Skills for Security to, to join the panel to share our experience in developing the Scottish, Northern Irish and Welsh apprenticeship and pass on our experience to to help the Trailblazer group in developing their own fit-for-purpose apprenticeship. So we're in the very early stages of that development. Um, We're about five or six meetings in, but the progress has been really, really good, and we're hoping that the apprenticeship will be ready to offer by summer of next year. And what we've also identified in the the development of this apprenticeship programme is that actually there's a a real need out there for higher level training within the sector as well. And the Trailblazer Group in England have actually decided to split into two because there's so many participants on the group where half of the group are going to work on a level two apprenticeship, which will see training being offered to sort of security officers. And we're actually going to be developing now a degree level apprenticeship as well. So it's really going to help and create what we call a career pathway throughout the sector. So when a young school child is looking at careers, they'll look at the security industry as career development because they've got a lower level apprenticeship programme to enter. They've got the development onto the level three frontline manager uh, apprenticeship programme, and then they can progress from there onto the the higher level degree programme. And it makes it much more attractive for a young person to to join the industry, which is what it's all about. And looking ahead, David, what's next in the pipeline at Skills for Security? 
the breakdown of what we're going to be doing next is um, is first of all around the, the electronic sector. We see a real need to continuously develop people within that sector. At present, there's only a level three apprenticeship program that's really recognised by government. What we are aiming to try and do is is provide a foundation level training program where school kids can join, do the relevant training to get employability skills and then progress on to the apprenticeship program. But there's also a need for higher level advanced training for the industry. And during the lockdown, you might have noticed that we have uh, been working with IFSEC and delivering CPD training to industry. They were very well sought after. We had 6,000 people attend um, that uh, CPD accredited training over the four day sessions. And we're looking to do a bit more of that, a bit more development around the advanced training schedule in order to upskill people that have been working in the industry for uh, many, many years. And in terms of uh, the physical security sector, it's an area that Skills for Security have sort of been, in all honesty, a bit disappointed on. We've not offered the training that I believe that we should be offering within that sector. So over the next year, Skills for Security are obviously working on the apprenticeship um, in Scotland, Northern Ireland, Wales, and we're now involved in the Trailblazer Group. But we're also looking at how we can uh, offer CPD accredited training throughout the industry, a bit like what we're doing with the electronics sector. And we're, we're looking at different ways that we can get involved within the, the training sector for the physical security. So we've actually currently gone through the approval process for the SIA licence to practice. So we're looking to do, to offer that as part of our core delivery options to the sector over the next couple of months. So that's quite an exciting opportunity. Returning to the news now, and global risk consultancy Civiline has released a detailed report calling for organisations to be prepared for the wide range of issues that have been exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic. The report looks at global risk trends that need to be considered as leaders seek to protect their staff, market access, assets, reputation and technological base in the second half of 2020. The spread of the virus over Q1 and Q2 prompted an economic contraction unsurpassed in living memory. The COVID-19 pandemic will remain the most significant economic and political variable globally, causing the acceleration of underlying global trends that have been building over the last few years. The Sibyline report duly highlights several knock-on effects that organisations need to be ready to respond to. For example, 67% of countries face increasing political risk. Geopolitical tensions such as the Russo-Saudi oil price war and strained US-China relations have been fuelled during the COVID-19 response, adversely impacting supply chains, significantly increasing the risk of state-sponsored cyber espionage and also intellectual property theft. These tensions are testing business ethics and forcing some organisations to pick sides, while corporations and NGOs will increasingly become pawns amid rising tensions. 46% of countries face a surge in civil unrest, rising unemployment, the fast-track introduction of automation affecting manual jobs, societal tensions, poor climate policies, human rights violations, food shortages and corruption are increasingly mobilising people to take both virtual and physical action. When it comes to lone actors, 12 significant incidents have occurred this year in the UK, France, the US, Canada, the Maldives, Germany and Israel. The risk of attacks from lone actors continues and it remains harder for security services to intercept this threat, especially so given the use of basic tactics such as stabbings and attacks with vehicles. Lockdown has mitigated incidents somewhat, but those with existing mental health conditions have had their issues magnified by isolation. There's now an increasing chance of individuals being 
being recruited online by far-right or jihadist groups. 51% of countries are predicted to face increased crime. The crash of the wholesale drug market, closed borders and difficult logistics have done anything but halt activity. Instead, organised crime groups have used lockdown as an opportunity to diversify, taking advantage of distracted enforcement agencies. Virtual kidnappings have risen, while cybercrime such as ransomware attacks on corporate systems has increased by more than 300% in some hard-hit countries like Brazil, Colombia and Argentina. Businesses are having to adopt new methods at a much faster rate in order to protect their people, assets and data from the rapidly evolving threats. The Sibyline report aims to give leaders an holistic review of the risk themes for 2020, first identified in November last year. It also provides a six-month forecast such that those business leaders can take action to mitigate risk for their organisations and do the right thing for all of their stakeholders. Justin Crump, CEO of Sibyline and a guest on episode four of the Security Matters podcast said, and I quote, the socio-economic impact of the COVID-19 pandemic has yet to take full effect. The current phase is really just the end of the beginning. Rising unemployment and hardship, as well as an increasing focus on inequality, will serve as a key trigger for unrest across the world. Young adults and blue-collar roles are set to be most affected, worsening long-standing grievances among marginalised communities. Crump added, organisations and states that take an irresponsible and uncompassionate stance on redundancies, climate change and equality are set to become targets. Leaders must adopt a proactive, intelligence-led approach towards decision-making and do the right thing for all of their stakeholders amid an increase complex and uncertain environment. Unsurprisingly, organised crime is proving to be the most nimble player in the face of the coronavirus pandemic. Wholesale illicit narcotics markets have been affected, and although there's an expectation that the core business of drug trafficking will resume once lockdowns are eased, crime groups have evolved in terms of how they operate in the midst of the crisis. Criminal groups have been corrupting procurement processes rolled out by government seeking to quickly respond to COVID-19 gaps, enhancing their local power by setting up food distribution centres and raising funds via ransomware attacks and virtual kidnappings. Organisations need to remain aware and vigilant of the threats these groups pose to businesses, and also identify ways in which to mitigate any associated threats before they arise. The report uses Sibyline's World Risk Register and Astra algorithm, which forecasts six months of increasing risk and volatility. Collecting data since 2015, it tracks 32 risk factors covering political, security, criminal and governance risk. Each factor is scored between 1 and 10 and analysed by regional intelligence experts to deliver qualitative as well as quantitative analysis. The Sibyline report is an excellent and unique view of the global situation and emerging trends and well worth reading in full. Also in the news, the Information Commissioner's Office has published its annual report for 2019-2020, covering what the Information Commissioner Elizabeth Denham has called a transformative period for privacy and data protection and, indeed, broader information rights. The report covers the 12 months to 31st of March 2020 and focuses on how the ICO supports and protects the public and organisations. The age-appropriate design code introduced by the Data Protection Act 2018 was published back in January. When it comes into full effect, it will help steer businesses to comply with current information rights legislation. The ICO intervened in the High Court case on the use of facial recognition technology by the South Wales Police as part of the former's work to ensure that the use of this technology doesn't infringe people's rights. As a response to the judgment, the ICO issued the first Commissioner's opinion. Guidance for businesses and organisations alike on data protection and Brexit implementation was published to help them comply with the law once the UK leaves the EU. Meanwhile, the ICO's new Freedom of Information strategy was launched, which sets out how the organisation works to create a culture of openness in public authorities. It also commits the ICO to making the case for reform of the Access to Information law as set out previously in its own outsourcing oversight report. Across the 12 months covered by the document, the ICO received 38,514 data protection complaints. The organisation closed 39,860 data protection cases 
up from 34,684 in 2018-2019, and received 6,367 Freedom of Information complaint cases. The ICO took regulatory action 236 times in response to breaches of the legislation that it regulates. That included 54 information notices, 8 assessment notices, 7 enforcement notices, 4 cautions, 8 prosecutions and 15 fines. Over 2,100 investigations were conducted in all. The organisation also settled a case with Facebook, which had been brought under the Data Protection Act 1998. Through its successful regulatory sandbox service, the ICO has worked with a number of innovative organisations of all sizes to exploit new data uses in a safe way, while also helping to ensure their customers' privacy. The ICO also received additional resources from the government's Regulators Innovation Fund in order to set up a hub with other regulators designed to streamline and reduce burdens on businesses and public services using data. The ICO's research grants program has encouraged innovative research into privacy and data protection issues. Back in January, the ICO launched its consultation on an artificial intelligence framework designed to allow the auditing and assessment of the risk associated with AI applications and how to ensure their use is transparent, fair and accountable. On a global scale, the ICO continues to chair the Global Privacy Assembly, driving forward the development of the latter into an international network that can have an impact on key data protection issues across the year. This helps to protect UK citizens' personal data as it crosses borders and also assists UK businesses when operating internationally. The report doesn't reflect the impact of COVID-19. It's fair to state that the digital evolution of the past decade has accelerated at a breakneck speed in the past few months. Digital services are now central to how so many of us live and work. The law hasn't changed though and the ICO continues to be a proportionate and practical regulator. Our second interviewee on this edition of the Security Matters podcast is Frederick Hagerman. Frederick is the business lead of the Honeywell Commercial Security in Europe. This division of Honeywell's operation develops integrated security solutions for commercial buildings and also critical infrastructure systems. When it comes to the European security business, Frederick is directly responsible for the long-term business strategy, day-to-day operations, customer relations and revenue driving activities. Frederick joined Honeywell back in 2008 and has more than 20 years of industry experience on both the integrator and installer side, having previously held leadership roles at Tyco, Chubb and ADT. I chatted with Frederick about several key topics, among them integrated security platforms and healthy buildings. First, we examined how Honeywell is helping business leaders manage the safe return to work of their employees. Frederick, as workplaces prepare to reopen, how is Honeywell as a company actively supporting business leaders in safely bringing their employees back under the same roof? The certitude that we have is that we are entering into a, a phase that many of us are calling the new normal. And within that new normal, uh, we, we're going to go back to an, an office environment where uh, people, particularly the occupants or the employees, want to have the reassurance that there is a safeguard from the building owner or from the employer to uh, to look after their um, well-being and their um, their health. A lot of employees will want to expect to see that kind of information translated through signage or process changes that the employer has taken. And in order to achieve that, the, the building owner will have to identify and define for his own operations what are the, the, the new policies and practices that they want to put in place. And, and to be fair, whilst we are starting to make some, some first assumptions, nobody's yet having the final answers to that. But there is one thing where Honeywell will definitely help upon. That is um, providing some insight to uh, building owners about uh, what practices are possible to be monitored and um, how we can help them to 
ensure that the compliance of any of the policies that they want to implement are being respected. So that when people come onto a site that, for instance, social distancing is being kept, uh, the flow of people is in the, in the right order, things like that, that's where we can help drive the, the, <clears throat> the compliance of it. Another thing is that an, a, a business owner, he will be looking at how can I then have my, my building in, in a healthy way? And um, here again, Honeywell, through their um, software that we actually are uh, launching to, to the building owners uh, that will, will help them to what we call uh, have a healthy building. So that's um, also where the terminology came from that we are using more and more within Honeywell is to say our software should be in a position to drive a healthier building for the building owner. And you mentioned healthy buildings there, uh, Frederick. How exactly does Honeywell's set of healthy buildings define solutions assist building owners to ensure workplaces are as safe as possible in these rather difficult times? A couple of years ago at Honeywell, we made um, a transition to become a lot more an industrial software company rather than, than a pure hardware manufacturer. And one of the, the, the things that we notice right now, thanks to that pivot that we made, is that we're providing a lot more uh, software-driven solutions to our customers, which means that the building owners can actually have a lot more control over the health, the safety, and the security factors that they want to implement on their site. One of the very concrete examples is that uh, last week I was um, myself on a, on a customer on a customer site doing a, um, a site visit, and the customer explained to me that thanks to the access control software that they had from uh, that they still have obviously from Honeywell that uh, they could reprogram well over ten thousand access rights in uh, less than one workday's time for the whole site to ensure that the flow of people was in line with the national guidelines around lockdown and people counting and social distancing. So they went like this was a real fantastic example that um, it almost in a heartbeat, they could they could reprogram the whole site and ensure the, the, the safety of their employees and be compliant at the same time. And how can building managers use their integrated security platforms to comply with the new demands realised by the need to meet COVID-19 restrictions, such as the government-imposed social distancing requirements? And will the situation require a whole new system, do you think? Well, obviously, we don't know what, what kind of systems that are being used at, at any site, but typically the way that uh, it works based on the uh, Honeywell commercial security software is that either with a certain version of software that a customer may have or with the addition of a um, extension of the software. So let's say uh, um, uh, an extra plugin, they will be able to implement uh, configurations that go in line with either social distancing, uh, contact tracing, screening of whether masks are worn or not, so that the, um, the building owners can, again, come back to those uh, employees or occupants and remind them of the, the safety rules that uh, they should be uh, respecting. And the coronavirus pandemic seems to have impacted every area of our day-to-day -day lives. What do you see, Frederick, as being the most important solutions that can assist in the return to some degree of normalcy? What we, what we feel or what we observe as a trend is that occupants or employees 
will want to have that reassurance or that visibility that they are working or, 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 or trading or operating in a healthy environment. And that, that will become more and more important given the, the, the number of hours that you typically spend at work. So having the, this, this capacity for a building owner to, first of all, monitor and control the configuration and the settings of their, of their building, but also to be able to adopt where needed because of the dynamics of, for instance, the pandemic, but that at the same time, they can share the, 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 the health performance of the building with those people that flow through the building, whether it's, for instance, through dashboards on screens that you can see in the reception halls and things like that. We, we believe that um, this, this will become more and more important and well luckily our current uh, software solutions have the, the, the possibility to provide that and when sustainability always high on the agenda for building owners these days how are today's healthy buildings focused solutions serving to promote energy efficiency in the workplace so that's a that's a very interesting one it's um for a couple of years that Honeywell is actually striving to, to promote a lot more energy-efficient buildings and, and configurations. So focusing on the long-term cost of the life cycle of a building versus the one-time investment you do when you, when you raise your building. And um, unfortunately to say, but thanks to COVID, people are starting to realize that um, it could also be quite beneficial if they make their building more healthy, that they can also make it more energy efficient. And that's where, where I would definitely say Honeywell comes in here as, as one of the, the leading companies in the sense that the software that we develop, whether it's in Honeywell Commercial Security, Honeywell Commercial Fire, Honeywell uh, building solutions, Honeywell electrical products. Our software is designed in such a way that can that it can integrate with the different other disciplines, and consequently we can start linking, as an example, the flow of access control to the energy consumption that is required in that given space where you have the flow of people. So you will have the possibility to define the 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 air refreshment speed in a, in, a, in a room, whether you have two people versus when you have 20 people, the, the number of lumen or looks that you want to have to give light and so on and so on. So actually making the bridge between the, the different uh, solutions that we can provide will, will lead to that efficiency. And in the end, it will, it will pay itself back we have evidence of, of customers that uh, they will have uh, that they have a return that is um, close to 40% in, in less than two years, which is fantastic. That brings us to the end of this latest edition of the Security Matters podcast. Many thanks to David Scott from Skills for Security and Frederick Hagerman of Honeywell for their valued contributions. Many thanks also to our podcast sponsors, The Security Event. The Security Event runs at the NEC in Birmingham on the 27th, 28th and 29th of April 2021. To register for the show, visit www.thesecurityevent.co.uk. Don't forget to visit our website at www.fsmatters.com forward slash security hyphen matters. 
where you can view our podcasts and also read the latest news and opinion from the security business sector. You can also access our dedicated features content and sign up to receive our weekly news bulletins. Please do contact us if there are any key things you would like us to explore on upcoming broadcasts. You can do so on Twitter by using the hashtag SecurityPod. On that note, make sure you follow us on Twitter at WBMSecMatters. As a reminder, the Security Matters podcast is live to view every fortnight on Wednesdays. Please do like and share the content and spread the word among your industry colleagues. You can listen to the Security Matters podcast for free on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube or Podbean. To download the podcast on iTunes or Spotify, all you need to do is enter the term Security Matters into your chosen platform search box. On the next episode, one of our guests will be John Davis, the Managing Director of Access Control Solutions Specialist, TDSI. We'll see you then.